Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the, uh, the last in our series on the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, I should say. Uh, tonight we look at self-control and we try to wrap up the series. So just a word about what I want to hope to do and then I'm going to pray and try to do it. I want to say something about sort of the definition of self-control sort of from the perspective outside the church. And then I want to look at the word for self-control in this passage and the Christian understanding, the New Testament understanding of self-control. And then I want to try to unpack it. And today the, the stories of hope will all focus on Jesus, who is the quintessential example of self-control. And it's a kind of an interesting prism to use the, the image or the idea of self-control and to look at the ministry of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. And if there's time at the end, I might say a concluding word about all nine of the fruit listed here in the, in the passage. All right. Does that sound like a plan? The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, here we are again in the midst of all that's going on in our lives and this technology and this unusual time. And we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that you are Lord, King of Kings. You are high and lifted up and your train fills the temple and the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and is and who is to come. And we thank you for your presence with us, for your love for us. We thank you that the very hairs on our head are numbered in your sight, so great is your love for us. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to the fruit of the Spirit is self-control from St. Paul in Galatians, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who's the one we've been talking about, would come to us and be our teacher, that you would allow us to lay aside the, the cares and concerns of our busy lives and all the things that we're dealing with at work and at home and in our friendships and at two o'clock in the morning when we're looking at the spider in the corner and all the other things and give you the single-minded devotion that you so richly deserve as our Lord and King. So we pray that you'd open your word into our midst and bless us this Wednesday and challenge us to live lives more fully led by your spirit and full of the fruit of the spirit, including the fruit of self-control. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so nine lists, nine members of the list of the fruit of the Spirit and the, the desires of the flesh or the works of the flesh is plural, but the fruit of the Spirit is singular, and there's nine in this list. And we finally made it to number nine. I want to congratulate you. I hope you feel a sense of accomplishment. You've made it all the way to the end. Well done. But I hope you feel like it's been worth it. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing, Scripture. I've said this to you before, but I, I like to think of it as a garden. And in some of the most beautiful and biggest gardens of the world, you can, you can take them in in so many different ways. At Versailles in France, there's this spectacular garden by the palace. And you can, you can look at it from a bird's eye view. You can look at the quadrants. You can look at the gardens within the quadrants. And then within the gardens, within the quadrants, you can look at each individual garden. And that's really what we've been doing in the Garden of Galatians. And in a sense, we've been looking at one section of the garden, which is the fruit of the spirit section. And it's a, it's a good way to look at scripture. Sometimes it's worth taking a microscope and kind of honing down. And it's been a very rich fair in many ways. And there's been a lot of good things about it. So I hope you feel like it's been worth it. It, it reminds us again of how rich scripture is. It doesn't matter what vantage point you take, it's still an incredibly great book. Wouldn't you all agree? All right, so let's kick in to tonight with the fruit of the Spirit being self-control, the last in the list, just for the last time. But the fruit of the Spirit, reading from the RSV, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then tonight, self-control. And if you go to the dictionary to begin with the secular definition, and you look it up, you might see something like this. The ability to control oneself, in particular, one's emotions and desires, or the expression of them, which I think is a helpful 
combination, not just emotions and desires, but also expressions. So it has to do with our inward sort of life, the things that we think and feel, but it also has to do with the relationship between our inward life and how that manifests itself outwardly. And then it says, as if all that isn't enough, it says comma, especially in difficult situations, which is, I think, also helpful because as we've said numerous times from the pulpit and in other settings, uh, when you turn on the lights in a, in a dark basement, that's when you find out where the rats are because they scatter. And whenever you're in a crisis or whenever you're in a difficult situation, that's what you find when you find out what your character really is. So the, uh, the reality of our self-control is not so much what we think it is or what other people think it is, it's actually what is revealed in a stressful situation when we don't have time to try to go get a book or try to pretend, and it's just the real us that emerges. Now, I wanna start with this secular definition, and I wanna start with a famous experiment in the 1960s, which is called the Marshmallow Test. And it was done at Stanford by a gentleman whose name is Walter Mischel, and he took Surprise, surprise, he took the children in the childcare at Stanford and he ran a test and it's called the Marshmallow Test and it's super simple, classic sort of psychological history. His subjects were four-year-olds in the childcare program at Stanford and he walked in with a marshmallow and he said, I have a challenge for all of you. I have a whole bag of marshmallows here and if you want, I can give you a marshmallow right now. And if you take the marshmallow right now, you can do whatever you want with it, especially you can eat it if you want. But here, here's the challenge. The challenge is if you wait in 20 minutes, one of my research assistants will come back. And if you can wait 20 minutes, you get two marshmallows. Famous experiment. So as he tells the story, some kids in the group couldn't, couldn't wait. They just couldn't do it gobbled the marshmallows right down, and the, the others resisted it with great difficulty. And if you ever see uh, some of the films of these kids, it's hysterical. They cover their eyes, they talk to themselves, they sing, they play, they play games. Uh, a couple of them even try to go to sleep. <laughs> but the ones who wait are rewarded with the two marshmallows. Now, why am I talking about this ridiculous experiment? Because the same scientist took the same kids 14 years later and he reevaluated them, which is why it's famous. This time they weren't given marshmallows, they were given a whole battery of tests. And the differences were astonishing, which is why it's so famous. Those children who had been able to control their impulses and delay gratification as four-year-olds were more effective socially and personally as teenagers. They had higher levels of assertiveness. They had higher levels of self-confidence. They had higher levels of dependability. They had a superior control system. And this is back in the day, I mean, that now the SAT is going <laughs> by the boards, but this is back in the day when the SAT was actually used pretty much by every college and university. The students who, were teenagers and who delayed the marshmallows for 20 minutes, I should have you guess, they scored 210 points higher on the SAT than the group that didn't. The whole point is people are different based on their ability to control their inner life, even in a secular sense. And the importance of that control is so great that 14 years later, you have all these manifestations in the same kids. And that's just one marshmallow story. Ima imagine what that could say about other areas of life. And supposing you didn't wait for 20 minutes, supposing you waited longer, et cetera, et cetera. So you got the image. Uh, and, and it's usually, I tend to associate self-control with self-help books, the self-help section. And the important thing about the, the secular definition is it's actually accurate, but it's, it's crucial to see the unstated piece. And you all know this about secularism. I don't think I've ever really said this to you before, but it's very important. Secularism is the, the, the reality that the world and everything in it is operating, and here's the key idea, as if God is not there. 
One of the fastest ways to see secularism is to watch TV because almost every program that you watch in every situation, whether it's family or work or whatever, there's no reality of God being treated as if he exists. And that's, that's secularism. And, and so what, what the, the reason why I bring that up is when you think as a Christian and you're dealing with secular things, you have to read God back in and you have to look for the gap or you're not going to see the insidious nature of the way secularism has crept in. And the problem with that definition, as I've given it to you, is it's accurate insofar as it goes, but the secular definition of self-control never actually explicitly states the problem with it, which is question, what, what are the ends of self-control? That is to say, if I read you the definition to control yourself, in particular your emotions and your inner life, especially in difficult situations, so that what? And the answer in the secular world is so that you can get ahead, you can stomp on other people, you can make more money. You can, in other words, the purpose of self-control is to serve you and your agenda. And that's the key distinction between the accurate part and the inaccurate part is what it serves. If, you, in, if you're in the self-help section, it's all about you getting ahead and how many times have we said it? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us, right? It's about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why the liturgy begins, blessed be us, because we're so wonderful. No, it doesn't. It will never read that way, because that's not the tradition we inherit. It's never been that way. Jesus shows up and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say anything about you. He doesn't say anything about me. He says the kingdom of God is what it's about. And then he tells us we need to turn around. So that's, that's where we are as we begin is it's a good understanding underneath the hood so far as it goes, but the ends that it serves are all wrong. All right. So the, all that brings us to the second section of tonight's teaching, which is this wonderful word self-control, which is enkratia in Greek, which is two words in Greek. One means in or in the sphere of, and the other means dominion or mastery. So it's actually a word that's used for places like kingdoms and realms. And the idea is uh, mastery inside, dominion in or dominion within. So dominion within proceeding from the outside, what's in there, it's the, it's the con control of the inward reality. And what I like about that image of the word is it, it, it's very helpful with all we know from modern psychology because you and I are incredibly complex. And when we say all that's in there, you and I both know that that means all sorts of thoughts and emotions and histories and ideas and self-conscious, heaven only knows what, and don't even get me started about some of the dreams I've been having in the midst of pandemic, right? We, as Paul says in one of his letters, we don't even understand ourselves, right? So, so there's, a, there's a whole dominion in there. And this idea of self-control is the, the control of that dominion inside. And for the believer, and this is the key distinction with the secular definition, self-control, and this is the heart of tonight's teaching, can only be achieved by the power of the Spirit. True mastery from within is explicitly in this passage a fruit of the Spirit. And this is one of the places in the Bible where you get the paradox of the Christian life about as fine as you can get it. So, so you can think about it like this. I've said to you before, in Philippians, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to work and to will his good pleasure. So here's the question, who is doing the work? And the answer is God is because God is at work in you. But if you heard what I said, that's not the only answer because it says work out your salvation. So we work out what God works in. If you want to get it even finer in terms of the paradox and the mystery, it's, it's this passage because it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about. So whose fruit is it? It's the Holy Spirit's fruit right? The fruit of the Spirit. But what is the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. That's, that's me. That's my self-control. 
So God works out what we work in. The Holy Spirit works out what we work in. And the only way that any kind of mastery over the complex inner world of our mixed up, sinful, incredibly complex, and uh, very vexing inner lives is by the power of the Spirit. Now, this word's used in the New Testament only four times. And if we had a lot of time, I'd take you to all of them. Um, one of the places in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it appears twice there. One of the other places is in Acts, and it's in Acts 24, where Paul is in front of Felix, and he's actually asked to preach a sermon, and he preaches a sermon about self-control. It appears once there, and then it appears here. So Galatians 5, Acts 24, and 2 Peter 1, verse 6 are the four places that it appears. Here's David Guzik in his commentary on Galatians. He says, I think, something very helpful about our way of thinking about the secular definition. He says this, he says, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. The world knows something of self-control, but almost always for a selfish reason. It knows the self-disciple and self-denial someone will go through for themselves. But the self-control of the spirit works in two ways, on behalf of Christ and on behalf of others. So you can think of it in the perspective of Galatians chapter five and Christian freedom that I've talked about before, freedom from, freedom for, and freedom with, right? So we are free in Christ, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are free in Christ by the power of the Spirit. But the, but the purpose of the freedom of the Spirit is we are freed for Christ and we are freed with one another. So if you want to ask the question, what is the, the self-control for? It's for others. My self-control is for my family and for you and for Christ. And your self-control is for me and for your family and your coworkers, etc. So it's not serving us. It's serving the greater good. And that's one of the reasons why we have to think about it so carefully is it ties incredibly deeply uh, to discipleship. Walter Hansen, in his commentary, actually places this passage in the context of the baptismal covenant, which I fully appreciated because you've got those six questions, right? You renounce, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? So you got three questions of negative, right, renunciation, and you got three positive questions. And he places this passage in the context of that because Paul says in verse 23, against such there is no law. And then he goes on in verse 24 to say, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then he goes further on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. And here's what Hansen says about this wonderful phrase, walk by the Spirit, which just parenthetically, was one of my Professor J.R. Packer's favorite phrases in the New Testament. He always talked about walking by the Spirit, not running, not fainting, not sitting, right, but walking, right? Remember walking? Enoch walked with God, and Enoch was not, for God took him, right? And just think about how many times Jesus was walking, and so many things happen when you walk. God created us with bodies, and God created us to walk. And here's what Hansen says about walking with the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, he says. Paul's combination of the indicative, we live, with an imperative, we, we let us keep in step, is parallel with the same indicative and imperative in verses 1 and 13 of chapter 5. The imperative expresses our responsibility to protect our freedom from slavery under the law, to use our freedom, here's the key language, to serve one another in love and keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit sets us in line and sets the pace for us to follow. Keeping in step with the Spirit takes active concentration and discipline of the whole person. We constantly see many paths to follow. We reject them, he says, to follow the Spirit. We constantly hear other drummers who want to quicken or slow down our, our pace, right? Walk, 
run, don't walk, run. We tune them out, he says, to listen only to the spirit. And what I like about that is it's, it's got a high doctrine of, of spiritual warfare as it's talking about walking in step with the spirit. If you take the fruit of the spirit being self-control seriously, you've got to deal with a cacophony of foreign voices, both from inside and from outside, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Outside, the world, and the devil. Inside, the flesh, right? That are going to try to t take you off course so that you are self-controlled for yourself or for your own agenda or for your family, et cetera, et cetera. And it's only by keeping in step with the spirit that we serve Christ and we serve others, all right? So that's the image in this passage. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's the Holy Spirit enabling us to master the, the life of the inner person with all that goes on, dreams, feelings, incredibly strange uh, thoughts, nightmares, daydreams, everything you can think of in all that history. Um, sometimes you're listening to music and all of a sudden it, it evokes a memory from when you're six years old. I mean, we're so complex, we don't even understand ourselves. And that whole realm is not something that we're going to be able to control based on our own strength. We need to walk in step with the Spirit, and we need to ask the Spirit to help us. And we need to do that so that we can serve others more effectively and serve Christ more effectively. All right? So that's tonight's teaching in terms of what we're talking about. Now what I want to do for just a few minutes is illustrate it from the life of Christ, then I'm done. All right, and I want to take three examples from Jesus's life. There are so many. I, I should probably do the temptation narrative, but I'm going to leave it out because we don't have time. But these are pretty famous uh, to you, and they're worth remembering because whenever you deal with these nine various descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit, the best way to think of them always, 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 like everything else in Scripture, is centered in Christ. It is a, it is a beautiful summary of the character of Christ. And if you want to look at what self-control looks like lived out under the rule of the Spirit, nobody illustrates it better than, than the person of Christ in his work. So first of all, if you've got your Bibles, you're going to need them. Um, I want to look at John 11. You already know all about this, but I want to look at the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha just for a moment. And But I want to take a, a look at it from the perspective of Jesus's self-control, which is not a typical perspective. You remember the story, right? He's on his way there, and Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is, we're now in the inner circle, right? Matthew, uh, and, and it, the way that he describes the inner circle is Peter, James, and John are the three kind of inner disciples, and then there's the 12, and then there's the 70. But Jesus had special friends, and this family, this, this, this brother and these two sisters, Lazarus, he went to this home in Bethany, and kind of like an oasis in the middle of the desert of his struggles in ministry. This was one of the, the home bases that was most precious to him. And you can tell it by the role that they have in the Gospels, but also you can tell it by the way that they interact with him. And here are these two sisters, and, they, and Lazarus dies, right? And you remember the story. So Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, right? When, when uh, he first talks to Martha, then Mary gets into the conversation. And uh, Martha says, the teacher is here and calling for you. So the second sister comes over. And, and what I want to do is pick it up. I think I'm going to pick it up in verse 31. So we're in John 11, verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, right? Because Lazarus is dead saw Mary wise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Then Mary, when she came to where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. By the way, just in passing, one of the most fascinating aspects of this whole story is actually the two sisters say exactly word for word the same thing to Jesus, and they get two completely different responses. Guess why? Have you noticed uh, no two children are the same. Ask any parent. <laughs> There's no cookbook for parenting. And the problem is it's so hard. Not only is there no cookbook, but you get one child who's like this, and you get another child that work, that's like this. And if you try this for one child, it's great. And try this for somebody else, it's not. Two different uh, women who, who have two different responses to grief and two different interactions with Jesus. But they don't, both say the same thing. Why are they different? Because 
Jesus, led by the Spirit and under the control of the Spirit and himself full of self-control, is outwardly directed by the Spirit and sensitive to the different places in which they find themselves, and they're experiencing grief differently. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? Now, this is one of the few places where we have a terrible problem with the English translation. And it, I, I will never for the life of me understand why the translators did this, but they're just trying to be very prim and properly English, okay? But that phrase in verse 33, which is the heart of this passage, in addition to the famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, which is coming in just a second. That phrase, which the RSV translates, you see where I am, verse 33, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, that's, that's just way, way understated, okay? The word that's used in Greek is a word that absolutely means anger, and it means deep anger. It means incredibly deep anger, uh, basically spiritual rage, real rage, rage against evil, a rage against injustice. And when it says deeply moved in spirit, and then it says troubled, that word troubled is used of animals who snort in fury, okay? So what I want you to see is he's with the two sisters. He's now dealing with the second one, right? Not Martha, but Mary. And she's deeply grieved, and he hasn't quite got all the way to the tomb, but he's fully aware of the fact that his friend has died. And there is this incredibly deep, visceral response of anger, which is so deep that Jesus snorts like an animal, right? So, translating it properly in verse 33, Jesus was enraged in his gut and snorted. If you read it that way, you have some of what's really going on. Now, here's the thing. Can you be that angry and still be in the heart of God's will? Well, obviously, yes, because this is our Lord, right? The only person who lived the fully God-pleasing, God-honoring life. So it's possible to be that angry. Second question, where is that focused? It's not on the fact that he's lost his friend, as frustrating and hurtful as that is. It's because he sees deeply what death is doing. This is, this is Jesus's fury at death. Death is unnatural. It was never intended to be part of the picture, if you remember the original garden scene. And it, it robs us of our dignity, of, of the reality of the, the life that God wants for us. And it is crushing in terms of what it does to human beings, right? Uh, it makes me think of Bertrand Russell. We are, we are furry creatures attached to a dying ball, right? That's all we are. Uh, when it comes to physically looking at the universe, if you're just, if you're just a, a, a cosmologist who has a very naturalist point of view, that's all we are. There's no God. So we just, we live, we breathe, we eat, we die. That's it. Furry creatures hitched to the side of a dying star, he says. And Jesus will have none of it. That isn't the life that God wants. That isn't what God wanted for people created in his image to live before him and for him forever. He's furious at the marring power of sin to destroy uh, human possibility and to, to destroy the will of God in, in terms of how it works in human lives. And what's so amazing about this passage is he, he takes that anger and he focuses it entirely on death. And so when you, you know this passage already, what's coming, when it says Jesus wept, He's weeping about the, the very thing that grieves him so deeply and that he's so angry about, which is death. And when you hear him say, Lazarus, come out, right? It is so powerful because it is with all the force. It's just like uh, that phrase in, in um, Genesis, and God said, let there be light, right? It is the word of God that brings the life of God and the reality of what God wants in the world into being. It is exactly that. This is Jesus 
encountering and overtaking the power of death. When he says Lazarus come out, that's one of the ways that he deals with his anger. But notice how constructive it is. He helps two women in their grief. And he at no point in this passage does anything to suggest that the people who are mourning, and they're, they're mourning all over the place, if you read it carefully, and they don't understand what's going on, and he never rebukes them, right? He's very focused on the way that death mars the reality of what God's will is supposed to look like. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I thank thee that thou hearest me always, but I've said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that God did send me. And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He stayed focused on God's will. He stayed focused on God's power. And he stayed focused on God redeeming the situation. And he channeled that anger against the reality and the power and the darkness of death. And he used it to accomplish God's will to redeem the situation. That's a great illustration. I mean, you can be that angry and yet have that kind of self-control to deal with a crowd, two sisters, an incredibly horrible situation, and it all comes out in the wash. That's what self-control looked like under the power of the Spirit lived out actually looks like in, in one story. All right, second story is really a lot of different stories. You, you know it also. It's later in the Gospels. It's when Jesus is being bounced around like a ping pong ball, Caiaphas here, Pilate here, and uh, they're all they're all messing with him. And I'm going to pick it up in uh, John 19, verse 10. But if you remember this, uh, this, this whole scene, everybody is acting as if Jesus is powerless. And they're, they're pushing him around. They're hitting him. They're doing all, all sorts of unjust, thing, unjust things. And he's remaining implacable, right? It makes me think of uh, Hebrews 12. Who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, right? So he's just walking exactly like I was talking about, walking with God, right? Walking in step with the Spirit, even in a situation like this. But what I want you to think about is, what's it like to have power and not choose to use it? Especially when you have people who do have power in secular, this worldly terms, provoking you by saying things like this. Verse 10, Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus says, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm mad. You don't even know how many mistakes you just made in that sentence. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Sometimes, Self-control means being in a situation where you have more power than you choose to use and you continue uh, to trust the Lord and move on. And if you think that was easy for Jesus, you've got another thing coming. The, the inward work that it takes for Jesus in this scene when Pilate says, don't you realize that I've got the power? I mean, I put myself in that situation. I'd just be ready to grab Pilate by the neck. And he, he not only doesn't do that, he, he basically says, you're still not thinking correctly. Can I remind you of the reality of the vertical world that you're ignoring? Weekends don't go around for Michelob, right? You don't only go around once in life, right? That's also self-control. And it's, it's very powerful to think about Holy Week from the perspective of Jesus's inner life of self-control. It is a marvelous example, the best ever. And the last example is the really the hardest one, and it's not the cross, which is the one that is probably the deepest one, but it's, it's actually Gethsemane and the way that Gethsemane ties together with the cross. And there's an amazing sermon by Jonathan Edwards on the suffering of Christ in Gethsemane. And Edwards asks this interesting question. He says, why, why, why is it that in Gethsemane, Jesus sweats as if like drops of blood. Why is he suffering so intensely in the light of what's coming on Friday then and not later? And here's his answer. He says this, this is Edwards now, speaking of Jesus in Gethsemane. This is the heart of Jesus' self-control. You remember the story. Nevertheless, 
not my will, but yours be done. That is the essence of being led by the Spirit, being in step with the Spirit, and being full of self-control. The agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, says Edwards, was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The Father, as it were, set down the cup before him. He now had a near view of that furnace, I'm quoting verbatim, furnace, F-U-R-N-A-C-E, as in a fiery furnace, into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed its raging flames and the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, not knowing how the dreadful furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. This is why in the garden he says that prayer with such depth of feeling and such depth of suffering, twice and with uh, sweating like drops of blood. He's, he's, he's nearly dying. He's in so much agony. And the other thing that, that he goes on to say, which is very powerful, is it's not simply that God brings it to him there vividly. It's that God brings it to him there vividly by himself, because that's where he has to be tested, and that's where he has to prove his character. If he does it the next day, he's got all the people around, and you could argue that he's doing it just so that people could see that he's doing it. But here he's by himself, and if you remember, everybody blows it, including the, the big three who, if you remember the story of Matthew, fall asleep. That he acted, says Edwards, knowing that as he did, that he took the cup bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act by an explicit choice. And so his love to sinners was the more wonderful as his obedience to God was in that moment. And that, brothers and sisters, is the essence of self-control. It's facing into whatever God is calling you to do and owning how difficult it is and how much left to yourself you don't want to do it. And nevertheless, uh, walking into it if you feel God's called you to do it and staying true to God's will and walking forward. Keeping in step with the Spirit means keeping walking forward, right? That's the way that the Christians all were crucified. They, they were crucified upside down, but they were all crucified forwardly following the, the, the call of Christ in their lives. That's why they were crucified, because they wouldn't renounce Christ. They were, they were still moving forward no matter what the cost. And that's what Christ did for us. And that's the call of God in terms of what we're supposed to do for him. So it's 7.15 and I, I'm kind of out of time to sum everything up. So I think I'm going to stop. So three things, a secular definition of self-control, then a Christian definition of self-control, and then three examples from Christ's life. Uh, the, the raising of Lazarus, uh, the, the, the trial at the end of his life with Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate being bounced back and forth like a ping pong ball, and then the garden in Gethsemane where he looked into the fiery furnace and nevertheless kept going and never lost his obedience to the Father. All right, let's pull everybody back in. Thank you, Dr. Harmon. So am I correct? You said that self-control is, is not to make my life better. Did I get that right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Father. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of uh, thoughts, uh, questions, but I wonder uh, anybody, all you, all you named people out there without any faces, but me and Andrew and Cecil. Cecil, you got a question or comment? Yes. The um, walking with the Spirit. Um, as you know, last year I got so weak that I couldn't even walk across my room. Um, God's been with me and I take a three mile walk every morning um, and I find that um, I am walking with the spirit in a way I, I go to a 
a point down on the Sonoma River, it's a peninsula. Right. And I stop and I put my hands up in there and I pray to God. I thank him for the wonderful, beautiful day, for the health he's given me, mm. and for the the leadership he gives me. I mean, the, the things that come to my mind, mm. solutions to, to things, it, it's just a, it's a wonderful thing. And so I, I think those morning walks um, are very becoming very spiritual for me. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Anyone else have a question or a thought? Griffin, I see you raised your hand so diplomatic. Can you turn your camera on so everybody could see you? Or if not, can you, uh, there you are. Yeah. Fire away. What's your question? So I had a question for Father Kendall. When you're mentioning the marshmallow experiment, done by Stanford researchers. How do you think that I guess incorporates what you're talking about, self-control? Because as someone that, like when I think about the marshmallow experiment, I think of how people how people couldn't resist the old reward, but how do you think that I guess plays into what you were talking about? Great question. Um, I. The, for for me, I think it's a great illustration of the of the power and the importance of self control. And what really grips me about that story is uh, the same the same people all those many years later when they're teenagers. Um, nobody, including the researcher himself, expected those differences to be that profound. So, so small steps of self-control led by the spirit can have real consequences eternally but also in our own lives later and you can think of it uh, i think um one of the simplest illustrations is just trying to develop a prayer life i mean i tell people all the time that the best way to develop a prayer life is to to write down on a slip of paper your promise to god and even if you say i'm going to pray for five minutes a day if you start with five minutes and you do it for seven days, that, that is the kind of thing that can be very powerful. You have, you have to start small and build a pattern. And what you'll find, as C.S. Lewis says again and again, is if you do that, your feelings and your thoughts will follow. You don't, you don't start by spending a day in prayer <laughs> and you don't start by going on a monastic retreat. It's how do you eat an elephant? Answer one bite at a time. Father Kendall, I, I was thinking about that marshmallow thing myself. Would, what would you say about uh, an element of that self-control being, I don't know what the right word is, biological, genetic, with a four-year-old, um, there's some element of it that's not their discipline, as it were, so much. Right. would you say yes i think that's right and and i think you all we all have predilections of various sorts through our complex family history and lineage you know so, some of us are going to be more say prone to um i don't know angry outbursts than others and things so so that so that the challenge of self-control will be more on the manifestation of god's anger whereas others will be more naturally passive and so that they will struggle to take initiative and, and to live into the call to boldness, for example. Perhaps the two comparisons you made with Mary and Martha. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the key thing there is to be who God has called you to be before God self-controlled yourself. So that, I mean, cause I mean, I, my kids are like, my kids are like that. My wife and I, we're all very different. My oldest is more like me. She's more passionate. You know, I'm, I'm the, you know, bouncing all over the place kind of, and she bounces more than I do, but my wife is super steady. So, you know, I'm the, I'm the kind of person who can, if I, if I get provoked, I can fly off. Whereas my wife. No father, say it isn't my, so. My, 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 my wife almost never does that, but she has other issues that, right. that she struggles with. And, you know, so the so the question is, how can I be a passionate person, the one that God made, under the control of the Spirit, 
with self-control led in step with the spirit being who I am. And you can't, you can't cookie cut it. Right. That's the hard part. Yeah. It takes a lot of wisdom and discernment. And it also takes community, which is why I like the fact that this passage is always we, we, we. It's let, let us walk in. You, you got to have small groups. You got to have people that call you to account because we, we don't even know ourselves. So. Well, I haven't shamed any of the rest of you to get off of your, just your names. Well, Andrew, I love it. Yes, sir. Mr. Cannell, what a surprise. I know, it's a shocker. Um, I first just want to, as it's recording, Elizabeth, if you hear this, I can't imagine any flaws Father Kendall's thinking of, and I am looking forward to a dinner invitation whenever this virus finally passes. So just remember that. Um, Demonstration of self-control, Andrew. <laughs> Um, one of the things I liked a lot of what you said, um, and I could go different directions, but one thing that stood out to me, cause I've been toying with this a little bit is the paradox thing that you talked about and self-control is not something for our benefit. It's for others and for the kingdom of God ultimately. And yet when I read the Bible, the Bible almost uses rhetoric that's trying to say, do this because you do have benefits. So for an example, at YouthQuest two years ago, we used that psycholo psychology experiment with the marshmallow, and I used it to talk about how the Bible says, don't let a temporal thing yeah. suck you in when you have to look at things from an eternal perspective. So is it just a paradox we have to wrestle with that God wants us to be selfless, but also speaks to us as we think for our own personal benefit? Does that make sense? Well, I think, I, think, I mean, that's, I mean you, you bring up a good point which a lot of the best writers say, which is really lost today, which is that the, the, the best life, the blessed life, sorry, is also the best life. In other words, when, when I, when I quoted um, in the sermon on Sunday, that the, the sermon that um, Eugene Peterson's son said that he preached to him every day for 50 years, you know, God loves you. He is on your side. Mm. Yeah. The idea that God is on our side is, is also that, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And the, the, the call that he has on our lives, the obedience that he calls us to is actually for the sake of our blessedness and benefit, right? So, so the last thing Aslan says in book seven is you are not yet as happy as I mean for you to be. The, mm. the point being that up to then, Aslan wanted them to be happy. They're just not as happy as, the, as he wants them to be. But the, but the Christian life is a, is a life of, of happiness and joy, which is why the fruit of the spirit is not just love, but joy. And that's why Christmas is such a joyous season and Luke is such a happy book. Because when you get the Holy Spirit in there, the kingdom of God is full of mirth, right? Joy to the world is just a great Christmas carol about that. So yeah, yes, I think, I think you have to say that, but I think you have to be careful how you say it, because if you don't watch it, you come off as Christian self-help. I think that's a really good point. I, I appreciate that. So John Ramsdale, I see that I, um, ur my urging got you to come up on the screen. Does that mean you have a question or a, a comment? Yes, I, I certainly do. Um, uh, what, what a great series so far. I'm sorry to see it end, but we only have so many fruits of the spirit I gather. Um, but, you know, from the totally um, sacred perspective of looking at the fruits of the spirit, it, it's very easy, I guess, to look at working on the fruits of the spirit as a way of making oneself more acceptable to the Father. Right. But when you say, right. and I, I don't doubt it, that the fruits of the spirit belong to the spirit. Yeah. Um, then it seems that the important aspect of working with the fruits of the spirit is to first surrender. Yeah. And so what, to what extent, you know, does the strong Christian surrender? What does surrender really mean in that perspective? It, it makes me think of the earlier story I used with Donald Gray Barnhouse where he, he, um, he has his wife dies and this guy has a housekeeper for a year and then he falls in love with the housekeeper 
and before, and then they get married. And before everything that she was doing in the house was because he asked her to. And now he doesn't have to ask her anymore. She simply does it because she wants to. It's the, the surrender has to come from love. That's why it's so important in the Lord's prayer. And it's so important to say the Lord's prayer every day. That the, it's just like the liturgy. Blessed be God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The, the liturgy just completely confronts you with the reality of the fullness of who God is. And so does the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father. And, and the only way you can get to the kind of surrender you're talking about is with God at the center, for the sake of God, out of love for God. So to quote Hebrews, we always make it our aim to please him. The reason why the housekeeper is no longer being told what to do is she, she, she just wants to make her husband happy. And I think that's the key motivation for the surrender. It's not try harder. It's not so that I can get better. It's the father has done all that is necessary for my life and my salvation. He has enabled me by the power of the spirit to be his child. I love him and I want to please him. Therefore, I will give myself over to him and what he wants. That's the, that's. Thank you. All right, anyone else? All right, well, thank you, Father Kendall, yet again for this evening and for this um, series. Um, I think uh, we don't have anything for sure, so I think we're probably gonna take a break next Wednesday um, give everybody a bit of a break, um, but we will, uh, um, uh, based on my little survey last uh, Wednesday, it seemed like everybody was interested in doing another series, um, so I might uh, take a risk, and if you have a, a particular series or th theme that you might like us to explore this next, and when we begin a next series, uh, email me and let me know, and we'll, uh, we'll take that in uh, serious consideration and start to talk about that, so if there aren't any other questions, I would say good evening to everyone. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good night.